neurodivergent people have such untapped potential. And I think that the way they see and experience uh, and that we process the world is something that could definitely be of value, uh, especially in this time where we just we just need a lot of innovation. We need a lot of things to change. And uh, neurodivergent folks will tell, you, tell it to you straight, which I think is, is something that's very necessary in the business world. Uh, and, and there needs to be even more of that. This is the As It Should Be podcast, and I'm your host, Tamara Jones. Join me as I speak to the people remaking the world as it should be. We discuss the role of inclusion, equity, and belonging in facing the challenges shaping our society today. Y'all, we need to talk for a second. Now I know, equity, inclusion, The world has been on fire with conversations on how we can innovate around equity and inclusion. The conversation has rightly been centered on racial equity. But even before this new wave, the conversations we were having, though limited in their magnitude, were still fairly centered on race and gender. Now, if you know me, you know that I am of the mindset that we cannot make it as a species if all of us don't have access to the resources and opportunities that we need to thrive. So as you can tell by my pulpit speech and my titling of this episode, neurodiversity is an aspect of the marginalized human identity we have neglected to bring forward into conversation. Let me hit you with some stats. In 2019, 85% of college grads with autism were unemployed. Compare that to the 4.9 unemployment rate we had for the entire United States. Now that's before COVID. I can't imagine that COVID made this any better. In today's episode, y'all get the opportunity and the pleasure of meeting Vanessa Castaneda-Gill. Vanessa is a co-founder of Social Cipher, a social emotional learning platform that connects neurodivergent youth and their advocates like counselors, teachers, and mental health professionals in an immersive virtual world. Their game-based approach helps autistic youth fail safely for social emotional success beyond the screen. Social Cypher has earned recognition as Camelback Education Fellows, Halcyon Incubator Fellows, and Facebook Gaming's 2019 Global Gaming Citizens. Vanessa and her co-founders have also been featured as Forbes 30 Under 30. In this conversation, Vanessa and I talk about the experiences of neurodivergent youth and the access and opportunity afforded to neurodivergent founders, Vanessa being one herself. Let's get into it. Welcome to As It Should Be, Vanessa. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tamara. I'm super excited to be here. You are a rock star, clearly, based on your intro. Um, And I mean, Social Cypher itself is the coolest thing. So I really would love if you can just go in and talk about, uh, talk a little bit 
uh, talk a little bit about what Social Cypher is and what the mission it is that you guys are trying to achieve and how you guys are doing it. Yeah, uh, super happy to go into that. So um, Social Cypher is a video game company for neurodivergent youth. Um, we, as you said, you know, we're a social emotional learning platform um, and we really are aiming to just connect um, neurodivergent youth uh, with their advocates in a way that helps them uh, become empowered, um, feel represented, uh, and just seen and understood. Um, that's really what the core of this all is. It's really about uh, self-determination, being able to embrace uh, a neurodivergent identity um, and going with it. And um, yeah, that's that's a little bit about what we are, what we do. Uh, our first game is uh, we, we built Space Pirate Adventures um, that teach social emotional skills uh, and include autistic characters. Um, so our first uh, game is a, it follows the adventures of an autistic star mapper. Her name is Ava and she goes through all of these different worlds and recruits different pilot pirates in order to um, find community uh, and battle her own self-doubt. So that's kind of what we're up to. Ooh, we are definitely going to get into Ava a little bit later into the episode. But um, first, I think I want to ask you just a little bit about your story, kind of what led you to the work that you're doing today and, and kind of how did your how did your upbringing kind of shape the work or shape the path to your work? Yeah, um, it's it's very on the nose. <laughs> so I. I actually was diagnosed as autistic when I was 14. Um, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. And uh, I had a really rough time with it at first. I think that uh, there were and you know, still are a lot of stereotypes of autistic people that are out there, um, a lot of them being negative. Um, and I really didn't have any resources to be able to understand autism for myself, uh, especially autism in women and girls, because uh, there's there we could do a whole other podcast on how uh that underdiagnosis is happening and um, how that manifests but uh yeah i i really just didn't know and and i grew up in a single parent household i, I my mom pretty much raised me uh on her own and uh i really just we didn't really know know what else to do and uh as a result i just fell into this sort of uh depression where I just had uh, anxiety and depression and low self-esteem for about six years because I just I, I didn't know what to do with it. I felt uh, like I was broken, like I couldn't connect with other people. Um, and I was like, all right, well, if I can't connect with others like this diagnosis tell me tells me I can't, uh, then why should I even try? So I really shut myself off to that. I hid my diagnosis from everyone. Um, and it wasn't until my mom and I started working uh, and understanding social emotional skills through the things that I loved that I started to open up a little bit. So for me, it was really about uh, finding stories that I could relate to in movies and music and games uh, that helped me kind of like relate to uh, different social emotional concepts uh, and realize that, oh, I wasn't incapable and I'm not broken. I don't need to be fixed. It's more that I just learned in a different way. Uh, and that's super cool. And um it was after those six years of hiding my diagnosis, uh, I started to feel a little more comfortable. Um, and when I was in college, uh, I had I had just I was just about to publish um, as a neuroscience researcher. And I just kind of put my personal experience together along with my research experience and 
told a couple of really close friends uh, about my story and whatever, you know, uh, it was the first time I had really revealed my diagnosis to anyone too. And uh, they became my co-founders. And here we are about three years later. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I love like the, the like low-key flex of I'm a, a neuroscience researcher or whatever. Like, I don't know. That was just, that was like a low-key flex and I really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you anything now. Like don't go to me for anything. But... <laughs> um, so you talked a lot about um, social emotional learning and the and also social cipher is you, you're creating social emotional learning games. So can you talk to me just a little bit about like what are social emotional learning games and why are they so important? Yeah. Um, so I would say there really aren't that many social emotional learning games out there. I think that uh, well. I think that counselors, therapists, and teachers have should get all the credit uh, for really just DIYing uh, games for social emotional learning. They have been doing it honestly uh, for years. They've been using board games and card games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like all of these different things to be able to relate better to their students and uh, foster social emotional skills like collaboration, teamwork, uh, resilience, stuff like that. Um, but I think that we've also been uh, sort of neglecting their needs here, especially with the neurodivergent community, um, because there really haven't been any uh, scalable games uh, that have curriculum built in for, for teachers uh, and for counselors that uh, are games that are actually built for social emotional skills. Like that is a super new uh, frontier for us. And uh, social emotional le learning itself is a very new frontier. Uh, there is still so much to be discovered in this space. Uh, and only, you know, only in the last couple of years has it gotten much more popular and much more of a buzzword in schools. Um, and I think it's be it's come a lot more to the forefront with COVID, uh, especially because we're now seeing how um, a lot of our youth, especially our, our neurodivergent youth, are really um, suffering from a lot of this. Like, I think that... Um, especially with neurodivergent youth in, in normal times, right? Uh, they are five times more likely to be bullied and 10 times more likely to die by suicide compared to the neurotypical population. Um, and a lot of that can be due to the uh, effects of loneliness and isolation. So, you know, thinking about how much we need this, especially now uh, when that loneliness and isolation is something we're all facing, um, it's really big and I'm glad there's being more attention being turned to it right now. I think we should put a definition on um, neurodivergent. Do you mind giving me yours? For sure. So uh, neurodivergence is essentially uh, a neurological difference. Um, so it's anyone that has uh, a difference in the neurology. So that's uh, ADHD, that's autism. Um, that can be things like uh, Tourette's syndrome as well, um, or even dyslexia. So it's it's anything where basically your brain is, uh, it, it thinks, learns, or perceives the world in a little bit of a different way. Um, and in sort of the autism advocate, uh, model, which is not an official term, but like, I'm just making it up. Um, but in this model, it's more, it, it's less of uh, a medical definition uh, and more of the belief that being a neurodivergent person is part of your identity. Um, it's 
not something while it does of course have uh its its difficulties um and it does have its setbacks uh there are also a lot of things to identify with within it and that um should be uh, honestly uh, just a lot of traits within it should just be advocated for more and recognized more uh and that's kind of what the neurodiversity and neurodivergence movement is about love that thank you i think that um is going to be super helpful as we move uh, through this conversation. I would love if you could talk a little bit about what makes your game specifically impactful for autistic youth and how this game has been designed to represent their experiences. Sure. Um, so I would say, I mean, the, fir- the first thing I always say and start with with this is this is all Every, every step of development in our game um, is informed by actual neurodivergent people um, and neurodivergent youth. Um, nearly half of our team uh, is made up of neurodivergent people. Um, our curriculum writer and our um, social emotional learning spe- specialists are both autistic. Like those are just things that are super important to us. Um, and I also realized, uh, especially in the beginning, uh, in the super early stages that I definitely, even though I am an autistic person, I could definitely not just depend on my own. When you've met one autistic person, you've met precisely one, right? Like you have, everyone has a completely different experience uh, on the spectrum and I cannot speak for everyone uh, and nor should I. Like, <laughs> so uh, for us, it's just since day one been super important uh, to consistently play test and interview uh, with autistic youth. Um, so that's a lot of what we do. And the very first interview we did, uh, was with a, oh my gosh, she was, she was six years old. Uh, yeah, she's now nine. Um, but young girl, her name was Ava. Um, her name is Ava. Uh, we still test with her. Um, but anyway, so I met Ava, uh, super, super bright and brilliant young girl. Um, and I, when I first met her and, you know, this was back when we were doing, oh my gosh, uh, I had, I used to have little storyboards. I actually, I have them right here. So at least you can see them, but Show me, what, like please. I have like, <laughs> I made these like three years ago now. These were that is fantastic. <laughs> they were like- For those listening, it is pencil drawn art that is way beyond the skill level that I could ever wish to achieve. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best I can do at explaining. And none of it ever happened. Um, None of this made this into the game. Shocker. Um, Like it was, but like imagine showing this to like a six year old who is excited to like hear about and play a game. Um, She, she was not super happy, but like, And then I like I tried to up it and I am no game developer. So I the next thing I did was I built uh, a PowerPoint. I built a PowerPoint and uh, I did some of the custom animation as you just like click through it. Um, And that also was not pleasing to a six year old. Uh, Surprise, surprise. What I did gather from that, though, was that, oh, man, like this is this is a young person that I like, I don't want her to ever have to go through the same things that I did, uh, especially with my own self-esteem and the horrible things that I thought about myself. So I've got to make sure that she feels seen in this. Um, and so that's kind of what it really became about. And so it, it, we named our main character, Ava, we, we made sure she was an autistic character. Um, so that's, 
constantly working with our neurodiversity consultants uh, and other neurodivergent youth to make sure that her experiences are are true uh, and and resonate with the autistic community, um, or at least some elements do, uh, depending on your experience. The other thing that we do to make it more specifically impactful for autistic youth is we turn a couple of traditional game elements sort of on their heads. So one thing that we do is we have, uh, you know, in a traditional video game, you have like, especially with like, platformers. Uh, so if you don't know platformers, you know, think like Super Mario Brothers kind of gameplay style. Um, so you have like deaths, and you have a health bar and stuff like that. You have lives. So with us, we were like, what is health and what it, what is like death or, or like an end for like the autistic community? And so for us, we turned um, our health bar into uh, spoons. So like the spoon theory is essentially uh, that you have a certain amount of um, energy for social interactions, for interactions just with the outside world in general. Um, so it's, we call it sort of like her mental fortitude um, and that's kind of her lives. And uh, when you run out of multi mental fortitude in the game, um, you go through sensory overload. Um, so that's kind of what happens to the characters that they, they go through sensory overload and they have to self-stimulate or stim, um, which is super common uh, in the autistic community. Uh, and then, um, in order to sort of like recharge, uh, you actually do what is very much recommended uh, when you go through sensory overload. Uh, and, and that is uh, going to a quiet space and retreating and doing what you've got to do over there uh, to sort of calm down. And so actually we have like quiet spaces uh, scattered throughout the game as like respawn or recharge points. Um, so it's all little things like that where we're, we've been so excited to see our, our amazing animator just like put all of these feelings that I've had when I've gotten sensory overload uh, and, and like put them into art and and create them into things that you can just see. And you're just like, oh, that 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 visualization, that animation right there, right there is exactly how I feel um, when I'm overstimulated. And it just captures it. And we do that with everything. We do that with like everything from like the sound to the animation to the colors and art. We make sure that like, you know, all of the situations depicted in Ava are situations that were actually brought up as difficult ones for the autistic community. So for example, we have a situation where, you know, Ava's objective is to recruit a couple of pirates for the crew. It's making sure that she has trustworthy, respectful people around her. And there is a character whose name is Zeke. He looks super cool. He looks like a space hipster, but he's not a nice space hipster. Like he's not... He's a jerk. Um, and so you get like multiple chances um, to kind of realize that he's a jerk and confront that. Um, but self-advocacy is, is known to be really difficult in the autistic community um, for a multitude of reasons. And so, uh, you know, if you if you don't, um, you know, if you end up still recruiting this person on this crew, it tells you something about where a student might be at in terms of uh, their own advocacy for themselves. Um, if they end up confronting uh, Zeke, who's the jerk pirate, right? Like you're, you're kind of saying, oh, okay, they're starting to build a better idea of like when they are feeling respected or disrespected. And for us, it's really, really important as, as a lot of counselors have done with uh, board and card games uh, and, and tabletop role-playing games for a while, it's really important to build that resilience and that that uh, ability and chance to fail. I think that 
I, especially with the autistic population, um, many parents uh, and sometimes educators can be really afraid to like let their students fail um, because they want to be protective. And it, it comes out of good nature. But I think that the core of being able to grow and build confidence is that failure. Uh, and so for us, being able to have that failure occur with our players in a safe space, um, being able to just like let them fail and, and seeing that it's not the end of the world, that you know, you can still go kick out Zeke if you want to. Um, or like you can go, you can go apologize to our ramen robot who has a whole other story going on. Showing that these are things that happen in real life um, and there are ways to come back from these. I think building up that mental toughness is, is super important. So that's another thing we do. I love that. So you, are you seeing that mental health professionals and teachers are using your game as well as other as as well as just gaming in general to help youth yeah we definitely are um we have i mean we've seen it in a bunch of different uh areas like there's um we've definitely we've uh, there have even been like curriculums that have been formed on um other subjects right like uh there have been curriculum on stem that are from other from other games on history uh that are from more historical games uh you can like we have a counselor that we know who uses like Tetris VR for mindfulness, um, or they use uh, the indie game Celeste for resilience because it's really hard. Um, <laughs> you fail a lot. I've tried it. And so I think that um, gaming is really just getting its its beginning in, in this space. And I think that quite a few mental health professionals and teachers are starting to catch on. But I think that it, it's still it still hasn't reached scale or being incredibly mainstream yet um, because, you know, I think that there are still stigmas that exist of like, oh, video games are rot are going to rot your brain. I think there are, there's also trouble with with creating like a, a unified marketing platform uh, to be able to like distribute this kind of thing. But I have hope for the future with this, uh, which is why we're continuing on. <laughs> I mean, you guys are continuing amazingly. I follow you on the socials. So I'm seeing that you are doing all of the pitch compositions and um, and investors are just like hungry for social innovation. But I think neurodiversity is very much a space that social social impact investing is starting to gain a lot of traction in. So I wonder if you have any thoughts or opinions around what, why you think um, this space is so enamoring for investors right now. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I I think there are a couple of reasons, um, and I, I I think it's it's historically been a pretty small space, but I, I think it's starting to pick up. I think one one thing that I've been seeing is that this is. This is really just an era of identity and self-determination and people starting to embrace and really talk about who they are and really putting a stance on like, this is this is who I am, this is the type of person I am and I, I need I need uh, the recognition and accommodations necessary to be able to like be my full self. Uh, and you need to recognize this. I don't stop being like a Latina entrepreneur when I like walk into a pitch competition. I don't stop being autistic. Like there are just there are there are things that you're taking throughout all of your life. I think that people are starting to finally realize the potential of neurodivergent folks for just the very different way that we think and perceive the world. And 
you know, we're, we're known to have this striking uh, ability to hyper-focus and to have attention to detail and just think about things and see things in a totally different way. And there are just so many strengths uh, within the neurodivergent population if you give them the right, uh, the right, honestly, just the right thought. By listening to these folks, you, you're starting to you start to see just how incredibly efficient and project and, and productive and visionary they can be. And so I think people are recognizing that. And, and I also think that just specifically with social cipher, the idea of feeling like you don't belong and feeling alone in something is something that everything everyone can relate to and something that everyone has felt at one time. And so I think that I think that it, it's a connection, a collection of all of those things that that has started to make people pay attention. And um, my hope is that this is long lasting attention that that Social Cipher and the rest of the neurodivergent founder community is going to continue to get. I saw that you were featured on the main stage at Games for Change. Um, and I watched the at least the portion of your keynote that that was on YouTube. You talked a little bit about the bigger mission that Social Cipher has one day to become the global leader in social emotional learning. And you also talked a bit about the importance of investing in neurodivergent people. Um, can you talk a little bit about the value in providing this access to neuro neurodivergent founders? Um, and any thoughts around you, any thoughts you have around how people can be better at whether it's neurodivergent founders or um, just neurodivergent people in general, because we have a lot of um, business people who listen to this podcast. So it'll be like corporations and people in those kind of leadership positions. So I wonder if you have any thoughts around how people can give more access and support to neurodivergent folks. Yeah, uh, I definitely do. So I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before in the last in the last question, I think that neurodivergent people have such untapped potential. And I think that the way they see and experience uh, and that we process the world is something that could definitely be of value, uh, especially in this time where we just we just need a lot of innovation. We need a lot of things to change. And uh, neurodivergent folks will tell, you, tell it to you straight. Um, we're, we're super honest and authentic, uh, which, I think is, is something that's very necessary in the business world. Uh, and, and there needs to be even more of that. And there need to be a lot of, there are a lot of just business processes that, that seem quite archaic to me, surely. Uh, and, and that still need a change. So I think that, yeah, there's just this untapped potential, all of this skill and productivity could really create some, some huge, huge uh, changes in this world. So I think that's that's big. Um, I would say that when it comes to working with and helping neurodivergent people, uh, number one, just the most obvious is is listening. I I think uh, just you know if you know someone that is neurodivergent, you know, asking especially with social stuff, right? Like how you know how can I support you? How do what is the best way to address this situation? Um, I think that. Uh, Another thing is just look, looking into how they uh, sort of react socially. Like I would never 
I, I wouldn't assume uh, that because they, you know, aren't answering your messages or they, you know, may not be getting on a project super fast. Like, don't assume that that's because it's because they're lazy uh, or because they just like want to be antisocial. No, it's typically some underlying um, anxiety that is occurring. It is some misunderstanding. Um, there is something going on beneath there. And I think that one way that you could shut down a, a good communication between a neurodivergent person uh, is by just assuming that they behave socially like a quote unquote, because I don't believe in typical, but like typical person would like, would react. And I think that another thing is that being, being really direct and honest it is huge. Um, I think that sugarcoating using idioms, using, using metaphors and stuff, like just tell me exactly what you need to do and what the intention is behind it. I think that's always very helpful. And also, uh, I guess the last big thing is like, don't don't treat neurodivergence or autism as a tragedy because it's it's not. Uh, I mean, there you know, granted, there are there are definitely lots of difficulties, um, and and right there there is a spectrum, right? Like there there are a lot of ways that people can suffer as a result of autism. There there are lots of different kind of impacts and implications that it has, but it can also manifest in some really beautiful and brilliant ways. And I think that by regarding autism as not this, you know, thing or disease or thing that needs to be defeated, uh, but rather treating it as all right, this is a part of this person. This is a part of this person's identity. It is not all of this person. Um, but, but it's a part of this person's identity and you should, you should recognize it. Like just be, be straight up and recognizing that don't try to, uh, you know, don't try to tiptoe around it. Like we, we know, we know it's there. (laughs) Yeah. Shoving down pieces of my identity is not helping me at all in any situation. Precisely. Um, so I think the best, best thing you can do is just open up and make it a safe space uh, for them to just talk with you about it and have dialogue about it. There's a bit, there's a lot of interconnectivity when it comes to the discussion around diversity and this, all anyone is really asking for is that you're giving me as a person what I need to be successful in this space. And I feel like that that blanket apply like this is the only blanket statement that I will make on this podcast is that equity is for everybody. <laughs> so that's a good covering blanket. Um, I want to know more about Vanessa. So we've talked a ton about social cipher. I want to know more about you. Um, so how do you feel like your personal community is impacting the work that you do? Um, that's a great question. I think that, I mean, oh my gosh, my personal community has been everything. Like I, they, they have been the ones that have, have really, they, as well as just everyone in the social cypher community have been the ones that have kept me going. Um, I've gone through some really, really difficult, uh, and dark times. And I think I've, I've, I think one challenge, uh, one huge challenge with being, um, 
the the person, the very person that you're working to serve, like being the face of your company and also being the person that that has personally experienced this problem. It can it can have its advantages. Like I would not change this. I think it's what our makes our company strong. But oh my gosh, like it it, it basically means that the work you're doing every single day is constantly like this psychoanalysis of yourself um, because you're, you know, through, through creating Ava and in the beginning, we have an amazing writer for this now, but like in the beginning, writing Ava's story, figuring out what she would be like, what her journey would be. That was all based not only on neurodivergent youth, but like on my own perception of myself and my autism and how, how I wanted to portray things. It, it required and still does to this day, like requires a lot of painful exploration of, of points, some of the most uh, uncomfortable or traumatic points in your life when it comes to, to my autism. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of times of just bullying and feeling, feeling unheard and, and, and feeling terrible about yourself that I have to go back to in order to best represent uh, what these autistic youth are going through, right? In order to really resonate with their struggles. And so I think that creating Social Cipher and creating Ava has just been this constant journey for me personally of uh, reflecting on myself and having compassion for myself past and present constantly. And and I think that by constantly exposing myself uh, to these past struggles all the time, like they can creep back up on you. Um, and you can just start feeling them again and again, because you, you, you're not, that's difficult because you have a really hard time uh, separating yourself from your business. And that's what I've really been trying to do uh, this year. It's that, you know, every Every speaking event, every everything I do for this for this game and this company requires me to explore myself and my own perception of what I wanted, you know, what I wanted, what I would have wanted to see for like my younger self. Um, and I think that if you don't set healthy boundaries with that, then everything, all of the rejections and difficulties that come with running this business, which there are a lot, uh, you start to take them personally because you become your business. So uh, for me, my my family and my friends uh, and my boyfriend have been super helpful in uh, just helping me separate myself and just be like, you can't take things so personally. This This is part of you, but this isn't all you. And like, I think it's just this constant reminder that they are always giving me of like, this is, this is just the beginning. Like this is you, you have, you have a life ahead of you. Um, this is not all you will be. And, and if something happens with this, like it doesn't mean that you are destroyed. It doesn't mean that, that you're, you're done. I think them helping me through that, helping me create just much healthier boundaries and say, say no to more things, uh, has been huge. Um, yeah, that's 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 the impact that they've had on me. It's just been uh, they've they've helped me survive. You really got into the how your community is really helping you as a business owner and just making sure that you're able to separate your work from yourself. I wonder if you have any kind of self-care that you do for yourself um, that you want to talk about. I used to be one of those people that like very much glorified uh, burnout and glorified like working, uh, you know, 12 to 14 hour days. Um, 
I am not, I, I am transitioning out of being one of those people now. And I'm very glad because I think I, I hit burnout enough times uh, to realize that this isn't the cool, this isn't the cool thing. This isn't the cool thing to do. Um, I like, I like eight hours of sleep and having a life. Um, I think in startup culture, uh, with a lot of the, um, Silicon Valley white boys that uh, are constantly like, you must hustle and grind and not stop and can't stop, won't stop. And hashtag like rise and grind all this BS. Like that's no, no, that is not how you get places. (laughs) Um, And that is not how you like stay a healthy enough human um, to continue doing this work, especially in the social impact space. Like you, you experience some rough stuff and rough stories that just constantly anger you. Um, and while they fuel you to keep doing your work, oh my gosh, they're, they're exhausting. Um, so you, you have to separate it uh, and you have to uh, do things outside of it. Um, so yeah, I used to be one of those people. I am, I am not anymore. I'm recovering from that. Uh, for me, self-care uh it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of just like being with my friends. I mean, not really being with them right now because COVID, uh, but you know, just, just have it being on calls with people, watching, watching shows with other people. Uh, I'm super into drawing, uh, and, uh, digital art and such. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned this year is even for taking breaks, like I would beat up on myself, like just just be so terrible to myself if I took a break or if I wasn't, if I was, you know, 15 or 30 minutes behind schedule for something. Um, or, you know, if it was a t- like, I also have ADD. Um, so, you know, there are times where this brain just doesn't want to do stuff. This brain is just like, no, no, I'm not. And, and I think instead of now, instead of like forcing it to do things and telling it that it's a terrible brain, um, I, allow myself to be like, all right, my brain is not going to do the thing. I'm going to make it up when my brain does want to do the thing. Um, and when I take breaks, like it's not a break if you constantly feel guilty for taking said break. Uh, so I think the other big thing is like when I take a 20 minute break, uh, to eat a cookie and watch a YouTube video, like, I intentionally do that. Okay. Like that is my goal and my purpose in life for the next 20 minutes (laughs) and I will enjoy it. And I think that that's made all the difference is like, it's actually refreshing when you, when you take a break and you intend to do so instead of spending your entire, entire break worrying about the fact that you're taking a break. I'm not going to hold you too much longer, but I really do love asking these last two questions um, because I really feel like they set the tone for kind of what I want this podcast to be. And so the first one is, if you made the most impact you could, how would the world look as a result? Wow. For me, it would be somewhere where young people could, yes, grow up, have their struggles that, that help them build character and such, but still have this, this magic and this unwavering, unwavering faith inside them, um, that they're enough. And I think that 
young people being able to just continuously believe in themselves despite any other challenges they face because we can't we can't help that and, and a lot of the time um i think just helping youth be able to just have this yeah unwavering faith in themselves it, it would be what i would want uh and being able to have workplaces and uh schools and just any area where humans are uh and making those equitable and safe places for people to be uh no matter uh their background or identity i i love this um quote from uh one of my accelerators that i was in camelback ventures um where they're saying you know genius is genius is equally distributed and opportunity is not um and i think a place where that opportunity is just as well distributed as, as geniuses uh, would be a pretty great one to live in. Uh, and I want us to get there. I really like the quote that you just mentioned because it it talks about opportunity and talks about how like clearly opportunity is one of the things that's really stopping a lot of us from making the impact on the world that we want to make. I wonder from your uh, point of view, Vanessa, what do you feel like your biggest frustration or hurdle you face um, when it comes to making the level of impact that you'd like to make? I would say one that probably every social impact founder resonates with is that it's it's just not fast enough. Like it just, you you have one story that you hear of one young person finally feeling seen um, or feeling confident in their everyday interactions or, or feeling like they can go after, um, you know, go after that group of friends, go after that job interview, uh, go follow their passion. Uh, but then for for every one, one of those, there are still so many kids that, that haven't gotten that yet. I think there's a point where it's just like, man, I, I want to be able to reach everyone I can. Like if there were a text message that I could just send every kid of like, you are okay and you are enough and you're, you're, you're the freaking bomb. Like I wish I could. Um, because I think that, yeah, it, it just never feels, it never feels like enough. And I also think that specifically within the neurodivergent community, there, there's a lot of a polarization. I think that there are, there are still, many people out there um, who, who honestly, all of us have the same intentions. All of us want the same thing for young neurodivergent people. And that's, you know, to be able to live like happy and healthy lives. Right. But I think that there's a very strong polarization in the autism community. And that is that some people, you know, they, they have their own struggles uh, that I, I really don't know. I really don't know what they are, but they have trouble and will blame autism itself. Um, and, uh, you know, or, or they don't want their young, their, their children to get hurt. Uh, and so they will shelter them from that. Um, or they want to just think of autism as the enemy or think of it as a disease that they can never control and, and, and be warriors against it, uh, which can be harmful when you think of autism as part of your identity, as part of you. You don't, you don't want that to be exterminated uh, or abolished. You, you want that to be accepted. And so I think that there, there are still organizations and and um, and people that you know ultimately want the same thing, but but 
may not be going about it in the best way that that autistic people actually want. And I think that autistic people still aren't being listened to. Uh, a lot of the time they're just assumed to not be capable of making products for themselves or in, or informing people on what they want uh, when they are perfectly capable. Uh, you just need to give them a chance. So that's what I would say. But I, I think that there are many, many organizations uh, and groups that are doing an amazing job at, at making that possible. And I, I hope that we uh, continue to uh, increase our impact as one of them. That's amazing. So if people want to connect with you or learn more about Social Cipher, um, how can they do that? You can uh, talk about your social or your website or anything. Yeah, sure. So if you want to uh, join our waitlist or our newsletter or just check us out and learn more, you can find us at socialcyphergame.com. And that's uh, Cypher with an I. Uh, and you can check us out on all of our social media. We are most active on Twitter uh, at Social Cypher. You can also uh, email us at ahoy at socialcyphercame.com. It's ahoy like a pirate because we're pirate games. I'm cheesy. I know. Uh, but I really wanted to do that. So I did. <laughs> that is the perfect email. I would have never I would have never guessed that. But I think that it's the best email on the Internet now. Thank so. you so much. <laughs> it's all I wanted to do. And now you're giving this. me the wonderful opportunity of being able to write the word ahoy in my <laughs> show notes. So. You should see my newsletters, all of the subject header, every, every newsletter, my subject line is some kind of pirate pun. You heard it here, folks. If you want Vanessa's punning. It's all I do as a CEO, really. Be sure to sign up for that newsletter. <laughs> it is ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I'll be having just a little too much fun when I'm making these episodes. <laughs> Vanessa, we talked, we laughed, we bonded. So happy to have had you on today's show. <laughs> to the listeners, as always, I appreciate y'all for being here with me through all of this. And I invite you to please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. Share it with your friend, share it with your coworker, share it with your nieces and nephews. Just help us get these messages out there because building the world as it should be takes all of us. Until next time, y'all. Peace. <laughs>